In this episode, we're delighted to welcome Rona Warwick-Patterson, an artist and writer based in Glasgow, who has just finished her tenure as GOMA's associate artist. And Tessa Lynch, also an artist based in Glasgow, and Rona's collaborator on the book, Made on the Table, and also the performance Nikki Nikki Builds a Body, discussed in this podcast. Rona and Tessa will be talking with Katie Bruce, producer-curator from GOMA, as part of the GOMA at 25 series celebrating the work of the Gallery of Modern Art on its 25th anniversary. In a slightly different format, this podcast was recorded in a gallery at GOMA for the launch of Made on the Table on the 21st of May, and the sound quality might vary due to it being a live event. Welcome everybody to this event for the launch of Made on the Table. I'm Katie Bruce and I'm producer-curator here at GOMA and I'm also the curator of the show, Domestic Bliss, which you are currently all seated within with us. And I'm delighted to be back here in the gallery in person for this event and it's lovely to see you all here too. I'm grateful for the funding from Glasgow City Heritage Trust and Art Fund for the support to realise the publication but also the film performance and video work that you're seeing around you today. In this conversation now, I'm joined initially by Rona Warwick-Patterson, who is a visual artist, poet and researcher, and then Tessa Lynch, who is an artist and Rona's collaborator on this work, will join us in a little while. Domestic Bliss, for those of you that do not know this show, began with a request from the Sculpture Centre in New York in about 2017, and they were asking about our Nicola L sculpture, that's the yellow foot that you can see behind you over there. It took me a while to find it on our database as it was registered as a piece of furniture, not sculpture. And so this started me on a journey looking through our amazing collection that Glasgow Museums has, thinking about the house or domestic space, but also maybe feminist readings of this space as well. But also how works that come into our collection, so fine art, decorative art and social history collections, they kind of slip between art fields, but also the materials that artists use as well. And I was interested in the spaces and the context that they operate in, one in a gallery space or a museum space, but also objects that we can see in here, Ettore Sotsas, um, which are behind you, and the Nick de San Falvaz over here were created as multiples for domestic spaces, but they've come into our museum space as an object. So some may also know that Goma is on the site of the tobacco lord William Cunningham's house and it was also a former royal exchange as well as a telephone exchange and a library. So all of these things were kind of floating back in the back of my head when I was thinking about domestic bliss, which is now probably about four years ago that this show started in my head. I was also aware that the narratives that were emerging through my research and the objects that were selected by me were done through, I guess, me as a middle-class white woman. And in this semi-permanent space for works from the collection, I felt that I really wanted to invite or commission artists to respond to this, to disrupt what was there already, to explore ideas that they felt should be more visible um, within this space. And we've had a number of commissions with Kamara Taylor, Mandy McIntosh, and also Scott Miles. In September 2019, I invited Rona Warwick-Patterson to begin her associate artist tenure here. She's the fourth artist to undertake this role. Other artists have done different things. And the role of the associate artist is to provide a challenge to the building, but it's also to use the 
opportunity to research areas that they are interested in. I noticed the first artist is sitting in the audience. <laughs> and we developed this conversation or this idea that was central to the associate artist around the idea of mutual curiosity. So the mutual curiosity and agreed themes within the curatorial team, but then also with the artist that was in their practice. So the idea was that both of us would care passionately about something that would move us all forward. And in this case, Rona was excited about responding to the exhibition Domestic Bliss and Gomez History as a Home and a World Exchange. And so I was really equally excited about the potential of this response. And also her initial proposals to work in collaboration with others, but also look at how artist studios operate and wanted to bring her own artist studio table into the exhibition space. Exploring blurred boundaries of home, work, studio spaces, and particularly for women artists. And this began to unfold over end of 2019, when she took residence each Friday at her table, which is in the pit space over there, if you've not already managed to find it. And she was working in a public space for what is often a private act of studio practice. And here she met with artists, writers and curators to experiment in making work. And this work would also be interrupted by staff or gallery visitors asking her what she was doing or wanting to get access to the space or other things. And her works began to inhabit the exhibition and the works in the exhibition began to influence her thinking, which I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about later. And then in March 2020, we went into lockdown. And I guess that reality of the blurred boundaries of practice, life, making, care, became a reality for all of us. Those practicalities of home working with homeschooling, being isolated within our homes for caring duties, um, which disrupted our approaches to collaboration, but also, I'd say, the labour, and the idea of repetitive labour, involved in cleaning shared kitchen tables of work, schoolwork, and meals shared together. And so the context of Rona's initial proposals for domestic bliss and the tenure of associate artists began to play out more, more and more for all of us in each of the spaces where we were working within a pandemic. Maybe bring Rona in at this point into the conversation, ask as a starting point how the idea of bringing a studio table into the exhibition came from our initial conversations. Thank you Katie for that lovely introduction and um, thanks everyone for Ben, giving up your Saturday. Oh, it's nice to see you all. So yeah, I think at the time when we first started having this conversation, I was sort of interested in the sort of apparent dualities in public and private spaces, particularly a museum space that had had a previous life as a home uh, and a home with quite a dubious past. So the, the, the foundations of this building were, were built on the, the, the sort of proceeds of the slave trade. So, you know, it was making me think a lot about the, the sort of dualities of what is seen and what is unseen and the proximities that we as artists lose when the art object becomes absorbed by uh, a museum space. The proximity in terms of you kind of let it go and you know a curator comes in and places it somewhere and there's lighting and all there's all this stuff and it's actually quite far away from the sort of process of the site of production 
as being a, a real place with its own complicated relationships. And at the time, I mean, I, I had uh, studied sculpture and environmental art at art school and then had a family, so I was working where I could in and around the family home, so my studio was essentially the kitchen table. And so I was both sort of inspired but also questioning the kind of problematics involved from working at home from your kitchen table if you are an artist. And so at the time I was looking a lot at Philip Barlow's, amazing sculptor Philip Barlow's uh, Nightwork series where she made a lot of sculpture um, that was sort of table size and scale at night in her house when her, her five children were sleeping and sort of really sort of taking that as a sort of important aspiration that I had to keep going. Yeah, it might be messy, uh, but it's also uh, an important facet of display, I suppose, displaying creativity. But also looking at, I think it was like George Segal's sculpture called Ruth at her table, or at a table, where it's a very sculpted human-sized female form, so she's made of plaster, but she's sitting at a real table. So I was like really interested in how where the art object meets real reality, if you know what I mean, <laughs> and the, the kind of relationship and the conversations that the activity of cultural production, the production of meaning, the production of poetry and sculpture, whatever your medium is, at what point the, that work is informed by its um, context, and at what point, what would happen if you were to change the context. So the idea was very simply addressing the problem that I needed a, a space to work where you know I wasn't maybe being interrupted uh, on the regular and that I could maybe have a space that in a museum and respond to the context of working from a museum in a very public space, but essentially doing a very private activity, thinking, you know. What I didn't realise was that the, the commonalities between working at home and private and working in public is that is the same thing which is in, it being interrupted or a very fractured experience of focus. So quite often you'd have I, you know, members of the public would come over and ask me what I'm doing, especially if I'm just staring into space, you know, it was quite a lot of people just really intrigued. And then the conversation would happen, you know, about like where one makes work, how how you start to do that, and it's sort of demystifying a creative process to members of the public that are in here looking at art on the walls, but they've got no idea about this shadow life of the production of of all the work that goes into it, where it starts and how it, what it looks like. Rather than being frustrated by the all the interruptions and the break in my focus. I decided to try and maybe use it as a tool for making, like a methodology in its own. So what I found that when people were asking me questions, I would just invite them to sit down at my table and they would often tell me, oh, I've not done anything creative, you know, since school and the reasons why they've stopped writing or stopped creating art. And then, so we started talking about things that help, like strategies. And so I spoke a lot about some of the surrealist strategies for, so Andre Breton developed this strategy called uh, 
uh, exquisite corpse technique where you know you type a sheet of paper and somebody writes something and you fold it down and then you pass it on. So it's this collaborative process which is also subject to chance but it is, its roots are within the sort of dreamscape or kind of Freudian space where we're subliminally kind of responding to each other. So I sort of developing this system of working and then thought about inviting people into the process whose maybe work I was reading at the time or who I was maybe interested in their process as well and just using the table as a, a sort of form to sort of reach out and collaborate with other people. So that's where the development of those sort of initial ideas came from about like closing the gap between what is seen and what is unseen in private and public realms of the, the sort of site for creativity and the making of meaning. So that was a very long-winded way of answering my questions about that. No, that's fine. It was really good because it then started me thinking about our early conversations about the location of this table because since the pandemic this exhibition has slightly changed and we finally reinstated the books yesterday so there was a wee celebration party when the books came back in because as a curator I quite enjoy the live space of an exhibition to question and, and change the experience of it so I will often put works together but ask further questions of each of them or some of the themes within the display through the books that are on the table which are not here at the minute. I'm looking and they've got. But also that it, it slightly changes when audiences come in. I suppose the sighting of the table was where could you be where you could work but also because you were slightly pushing the elements of the museum by asking us to work with clay which I've when you were talking about strategies for making, you talked about your strategy of working with clay in order to escape, to then re-emerge back into the project that you were working on. So you were asking to work with clay, but also ink within this space. So we had to think quite carefully about where this work could go because it, it couldn't just form on a simple level because it did need to be your studio space. So it's actually in the pit space down there, which is the most practical space for it, but actually, is where three of the works, so there's work by Jane Topping in there that are drawings of her studio space that she made while working on a show over here. There's a photograph by Oscar Masaroli of Joan Hurdley in her studio. And then there is Jacqueline Donaghy's studio picture from 1995. So at, it was one of those happy coincidences that your live studio space was working within documentation of others female studio artists space within this exhibition. So I thought that was really interesting just how we ended up where we were mm. with that. And then uh, you've spoken there about inviting collaborators in early in terms of the exquisite corpse and your ideas, but then you move further forward and maybe it's just being on your own in that space or maybe it was just a way to explore, but you wanted to invite in other collaborators and could you talk a little bit about why that was the approach that you took. The duets mm -hmm. was not just even in dualities of private and public, but also duets with others to make new work. Yeah, I mean, a very early iteration of the idea was looking at how we change the atmospheric pressure in a way of museum spaces. 
So on my commute here every day or every week, uh, the street was just like full of buskers. So I was thinking about ways of bringing in sound or laments or songs. And so there's thinking about collaboration as a sort of duet system where there's, there's an element of call and response, there's elements of harmonising, there's elements of dissonance. So thinking about a collaboration as a duet some, somehow also makes it feel more like a, a kind of poetic union rather than it being a kind of curator speak. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, also like, having conversations with the gallery staff, like all the front of house staff, uh, the gallery attendants and people that you don't normally see, uh, the cleaning staff. So these were also important points for me to relate back to what they were feeling in the space. And obviously, you know, if there's anything different going on in a gallery space, a gallery attendant is very live to it and very responsive to it. So I started sneakily breaking some rules and playing music in the space. And um, so you, quite often you would, the, the gallery attendant would run over to me and tell me that um, six people in the gallery were all sort of subliminally dancing while looking at a piece of work. And so it kind of felt like there was an element of sort of where the collaboration with the gallery staff felt like slightly subversive, like we were kind of being slightly naughty together. Um, and the same with the clay, you know, because obviously clay dries and you have to slightly wet it and, and ink is wet and those things weren't really allowed in this sort of space. So, you know, it was like it's very subtle sort of um, introductions into the way the gallery responds as a sort of, like if you think about this building as a sort of expanded consciousness of its own history and how it allows for subversive behaviour, which was revealed, you know, brilliantly. And later on, we'll talk about Nikki Dissant-Fall, but, you know, unearthing a, a folder of her faxes that she sent here um, during the 80s. And just seeing, like, the language that she used and her also sort of provoking and that kind of elastic sort of relationship that artists quite often have with big institutions. In terms of how the invited collaborations came along, as I said earlier on, it was just literally whoever I was interested in collaborating with or who I thought would be responsive. So obviously members of the public, but you know, they were um, shy actually about collaborating, about producing anything which was seen to be poetic or, or you know, artistic in any way. Uh, so they would quite often just be conversations. But I think I was keen to work with people that I could sort of learn, learn a lot from and who I could trust in a process that was essentially set up to fail. So, you know, Exquisite Corpse poems quite often fail because, you, you know, you don't know what the other person's writing and it could just be, you know, a disaster and it's the same with handing clay back and forth between each other. So while one person was typing, the other person had and clay is a, also a very kind of responsive you know, material, it responds to body heat, it picks up like a litmus test, it picks up you know, emotions really well. Uh, and and, and weird, weirdly at the end of the poem, when the, the big reveal, when you revealed the poem to each other, there would be a correlation between the clay and the poem, which was a, a, a sort of happy accident in a way. So at the time I 
to come sit at my table and we didn't know each other. So we just sort of slowly got to know each other through this unfolding process and gauging very much like how instinctive the process of collaborating could be, how you use the context, you would maybe hear certain things being said or we would look at each other and maybe that would go into the work or we would be asking questions of ourselves and, the, and each other and that would go into the, the poem as well. And that was such a sort of massively fruitful experience for me to basically galvanise my practice, which up to that point had come from sculpture, but had, due to the restrictions of time and space, basically meant that my practice had completely just become language-based. So this was a sort of reawakening of how language could play out in different materials and how to create a community of exquisite corpses in a way. So, you know, so just invited people that I'd had a conversation with. So it wasn't really massively planned. Quite often creators would come just out of curiosity to see how this sort of live making would play out, you know, in public. And, and so I would, I would task them with the same thing, um, which, you know, was, a, was a kind of an interesting process for curators to actually become makers as well and how it's just again about this uh, issue to do with proximity, how we close that proximity down and make those uh, dualities somehow edge up against each other a little bit closer. I suppose one of those people that was involved in exquisite corpus, corpus writing was Tessa and early on you talked about wanting to do, it started out as a lament for Goba, but then shifted, but it, something around making an, an artist's publication and a book. And we were lucky enough to get some funding during lockdown that started to crystallize the idea. So I suppose it'd be nice to talk a little bit about where the publication that we're here to launch, Made on the Table, came about, but also as a way of introducing Tessa into this conversation about what interested you about her practice in particular to bring her into this collaboration that has resulted in the publication but also the filmed performance that we're seeing as well. Okay, so um, I had worked with Tessa prior to the This Made on the Table um, project and we were trying to work out today how long we'd been doing this but I think it's maybe around
as we've been talking about today. But yeah, so long-winded, but somebody gave me Rona's phone number and I rolled her up and because it was, it was pre when people didn't mind giving out people's <laughs> um, And I think all I can really remember is that you're at home with a baby, so you wanted to talk um, because maybe you kind of bored. <laughs>
own kitchen table. Just like normal prints, lino prints called Wise Women, is that right? Just being so like the Phila de Barlow thing, just being so sort of excited by the fact that there's like a, a creative impulse that is just no matter what's going on, that can is a constant. And so I, I just knew that when I was thinking about the publication and I was looking at all these exquisite corpse poems and looking at the weird clay sculptures, I knew that there was another iteration that was missing, but I didn't know what it was. And, I, and then it figured out after speaking to Tessa, like any good collaborator, is that, you know, they reveal all these gaps in your system of working. And so we, we talked about you illustrating some, oh yeah, that's what I did. So all the people that I collaborated with, I asked them to send me photographs of their um, kitchen table at home, just to see that like relationship between my, my studio table, my kitchen table here and the collaborators' tables. And I thought I could give these to Tessa, and maybe we could like work out like a series of prints that respond to these tables. But in the process, I think Tessa will be working with the collagraph as a sort of method of making sculptures, which was quite a highly involved process. But the thing that I liked about it was that it was a process which revealed a sort of ghost print, the ink that was basically, for a collagraph to work, there's a lot of cleaning involved. You've got to clean off ink, with, you know, and it's a very messy process. Uh, and then you're left with this very ghost, ghost, ghostly sort of image. But the process coming out of uh, the, the pandemic was just totally joyful, actually being uh, in a studio, working collaboratively with someone, and all the ideas that we were talking about while making these holographs that were in the book became the work itself. Yeah, just to make you talk a bit about the holograph prints for people that don't know what they are, I guess the term is similar to collaging, so it's kind of, it's the very first thing that I learned at art school in graphic design when I started, and um, I remember really loving it because it, it's quite a sort of photographic process. It picks up every detail that you collage onto a, a, um, a printing plate, and that plate can just be a piece of cardboard, but it has to be very, very thin, thin, like a millimetre thick, and you can put anything on it and you sort of varnish it down, so you're basically making your own, um, I guess it's like an etching plate, the way that you um, flood it with ink and scrub it back with scribs. So it's a really involved um, process. You have to use stamp and paper, you have to press the prints afterwards, and you have to put them through a, like a Taglio press. So there's a lot of labour involved. Um, and there's something really instant about it when it, when it comes out. It's a kind of, it almost is the object that you've, you've put on the plate. It's like a way, I guess, of additioning a collage. It's quite often associated with quite kind of 70s kind of thick paint and uh, material and stuff, but I quite like the idea of like really kind of paring it down, being really considered about the materials. And I think through working with Rona, we tested out lots and lots of different materials. And there were things that were very much gathered from the kitchen table. So it was like no paper, kitchen roll, um, we put some vinyl lettering on the plates that came from different kind of cleaning products that we found around the house. So it was 
to, but quite a lot of the shapes of the plates you'll see in the book also refer to these kind of oval shapes of tables and different kind of table leaves. So that kind of almost, the, the collagraph plates almost became our kind of gathering spaces for all of our ideas whilst we were talking and making it and yeah, doing this quite kind of laborious process. Yeah, I mean, I think, and the conversations about how we could take some of those ideas out of the book and maybe apply them, you know, back into the space itself, I think was important. So this um, film that's been projected up here, Nikki Nikki Builds a Body, so this is where at the bit where we uh, talk about basically the kind of slow absorption of certain ideas that can only happen over when you spend a lot of time in a space. So for me, you know, I was spending quite a lot of time in this space, but it was like the relationship between these two sort of slightly mystical female figures. So the Nikki de Saint-Fal, who made this uh, vash vase, or cow vase, uh, and Nicola L, who made the giant uh, vinyl yellow foot. Very little, I mean, especially very little information around Nicola L's career. It's starting to come out a bit more now, but they were both artists that came out the same period, so it was 60s and 70s. Uh, they were both still with feminist issues, they were both rabid sort of uh, collaborators of their, their own, but very socially engaged. You know, Nikki and Fowl did a lot of work with LGBTQI groups and she, she was raising awareness for AIDS as well. She, she, she just was incredibly sort of prolific, but she also came from this very sort of weird, aristocratic, French-American background. And so she had the space and the time to have this practice comprising of massive sculptural depictions of women. Uh, and with Nicola L, she was reducing, you know, it's interesting you were saying, Katie, about how the, the sculpture of the foot had been actually in the furniture in the museum classification. And so how that's exactly the point she was making by making these pieces of furniture that were body parts. So it's sort of interesting that that, like, especially these two women artists, seem to kind of have a relationship with each other and that I kind of wanted to really embody that in some way. So I think in the process of making the Congress, we were talking a lot about ghost stories. <laughs> so we kind of thought it would be quite good rather than to think about a performance art piece. We thought about how could we make work in the space so it's like almost like action research, but it's so we decided to think about it as being a kind of incantation or a ritual for summoning the ghosts of Nikki uh, de San Fal and Nicola L. So we created a, a ritual which is to make a, a sigil. So we had a statement that Nicola L um, said, which was, I am the last woman object. And we wrote it out and then we reduced it down to a few consonants, was it? Consonants. And then we created a symbol uh, that you focus on and we went into sort of trance-like state and we started making work in the space guided by these two dead artists, you know, so it's like it's playing with those ideas of the exquisite corpse but sort of bringing them to life in, in, a, in a 
familiar with. So in the process of writing the incantation or writing the performance script, you know, we were playing a lot about how we reveal things about the space and how we how far we can go with marking the space. So we were using other print techniques like frottage technique, which is basically like rubbing. We're like making our own rubbing wax from household materials, so that would include, I'd found out somewhere that if you leave uh, boot polish it, it kind of cures and then you can use it to do rubbings. So using all the kind of material, all the kind of materials of the home and sort of applying the space using the same sort of objects that we use in a domestic space. So we'd, we had a laundry basket with all our materials in it and we were using these sort of oval perspex table shapes as a lens to look sort of look at work and using it as a table itself on each other. So yeah, maybe hand over to you if you want to talk about experience of the performance. Yeah, I guess um, we talked quite a long time about the performance and I think the first time I spoke to Rona and Katie was probably end of 2019. So I think the idea of a performance or something happening, like it, it kind of took a while to eventually get to it. And then it was kind of looking back and thinking, for me the thing that I was really interested in Rona being at Goma was her occupying the space. So to do a performance back here, to me I thought it made sense to kind of re occupy and do something in the space seemed to make sense. It was over a period of time and it was kind of gathering and looking at the other world that was that was on display. So yeah we kind of spent the morning with this um, tabletop and a laundry basket full of different um, materials and once we've become the two Nikki show nippers um, we went around gathering things from the space and we kind of made another exquisite corpse and um, Rona was collecting text that we'd kind of stuck around in the gallery space which is done on the floors quite a lot of it relates to different titling of the works on the show here and also this fax exchange between Goma and Nikki to say well and I was kind of doing more kind of drawings and, and imagery so at the end we kind of made this big body out of the text and the drawings at the end so yeah, it's kind of another, another make, another sort of reiteration of everything, and I sort of feel like it could keep kind of going, this sort of back and forth. Um, and I, yeah, I think the Nicholas, I think the Nickies and the Nicholas, I, I can't really remember why. We, I mean, I think we've talked about them the most, maybe we've most drawn to their work. But also to me, it's that I grew up with so many people with that name, it always sort of seemed like a familiar, it's, you know, I wanted to have that name when I was younger or something. There was a sort of familiarity around it. And also, I think um, Nikki de Saint Fal in particular, I think is a bit of a, like, for women artists, she's one of those people who just like, you kind of can't imagine how she did it. Like, she's such a sort of character. And yeah, just reading quite a lot about her and that idea of how domestic she was. Often, I think her sort of privileged background allows her kind of not to really live in the domestic reading yesterday that she hated laundry so she just used to hide the laundry under her bed um, and she couldn't look after a child so she'd just leave salami in the child's crib and then go out to the party she wanted to go out to. But, but at the same time she kind of mothered, like she made this amazing work for the Tarot Garden in Tuscany which she, she lived in for 20 years. I mean these amazing huge 
sculptures that she lived in and she really mothered all the people that, that, that worked on the project and um, her big like nano works are all like these big kind of fertile women yet her connection to kind of the domestic and, and motherhood is quite um, quite lofty so that really interested me in terms of thinking like how do art I'm always just thinking how do artists operate how do they keep going because it's like a constant juggle and is it is it being born with money is it I, I, don't, I don't know what it is but I think reading about her and her want to do it is amazing but yet the she got there, how was she was able to live somewhere for, for 20 years, you know, she got this um, where she built the tarot garden, I think that was through someone she met in her like, modelling days, you know, it's a very, yeah, I just, I think how we kind of live and work as women artists is really interesting, I think Nikki to say power was interesting to read about in terms of all those things that actually can make it happen. Sorry for it. <laughs> I'm just going to pick up on that as well because we, found, we planned this event before and then I realised that today is the 20th anniversary of Nicholas Sandfell's death. Hence we're able to put the flowers in the vase. But also when you're saying about how she survived or how she was able to do work, we also, in this session we also have some perfume bottles which were donated as part of the Eric and Jean Cass gift to Glasgow Museums. And the perfume she worked on
you know, that's those sort of invisible sort of, so to, to use a sense and a sense that I think uh, Nikki de Saint-Fal had been quite sort of personally involved in the contriving of the, all the elements of it, you know, using it in a way which is referencing cleaning and also referencing, you know, the kind of slightly altered state that we were in when we had, uh, you know, tranced out in this, you know, work that on behind us so you know there's just there's all those sort of amazing synchronicities and crossovers that happen when you pay attention you know and I think you know it was it was a nice surprise to hear that today was the 20th anniversary of Nikki de St. Fowl's death but it's also you know the whole thing you know the whole imagery of the the, the kind of um, exquisite corpse it just seems that all these things are you know, in hindsight, it all looked like it was very well planned and that everything was seamlessly connected, but actually, you know, as we all know, the reality of uh, making anything is that quite often it's happy accidents and a bit of slapdash and a bit of luck and speaking to the, the right person or having a, a, like a, a port of conversation at the right time for you, where you're receptive to these things. Uh, is also really good and it's about, I always remember being told at art school, one of my tutors here, not to make work which was intuitive, you know, it was a kind of going against that sort of rational, sort of modernist approach to making artwork um, and I always found, you know, there was a sort of real dichotomy there between, you know, making work, I guess as a woman, but making work which is tacitly sort of responsive to its context and responsive to you know the many the many people involved in the process of making an artwork. You know, it's not just the artist, it is the curator, it is the gallery attendants who have to then talk about it to the public. So it's about sort of revealing all the kind of multi-layered, hidden layers that underneath the kind of penumbra as you were as it were of of a piece of work, you know, the shadow that nobody really sees. So it was, it was sort of important for us. I mean, we did this performance, and I was in a, I was in a sort of very strangely sort of trance-like state for about a day after it. I mean, we kind of didn't really know what we were, you know, what we were going into and what we would produce at the end of it. But ultimately, uh, you know, I think it was a sort of tapping into this idea that museums are kind of repositories of memory, and they also are. You know, they also select, in a way, what we choose. So to see a space where that Nicola L. Foot was basically in the furniture holdings within the store, and now it's been it's been, it's been reappraised by just the shift in context is so important. I think for people coming to the, the show and seeing that it's not just the stuff on the walls, which is by artists, it's also like all the stuff that goes into it behind the scenes as well, the kind of organisation that's supposed it to. Yeah, and you mentioned it earlier and I suppose that's that nice happy happenstance moment that we had when you were talking about Nikki and you'd sent me the essay for the book, which had kind of blown my mind because I wasn't sure where, what, what you were going to come through with and you didn't let me know until the final thing was done. But we were chatting in the office and went, oh, I. I've got copies of the faxes. So again, it's not quite exquisite corpse, but between Julian Spaulding when he was commissioning the tympanum on the front of the building, 
and Nikki de San So I'd found them in our archives. And you'd have Julian Spaulding with a typed letter on Glasgow Museum's headed notepaper that was sent to Nikki de San and faxed over. And then you'd have a 10 page response from Nikki de San that had drawings on it, writing, passionate, imploring to realize what she dreamt of doing. And Julian was the one person that could make it happen. And, and then you'd get Julian responding back, and well, I've tried. Um, and it was just really interesting <laughs> contrast between the two. That some of, if you look around um, on the floor, some of the um, writing or the vinyl writing on the floor is taken from those faxes and then re reimagined here as well. And that, that was just a chance because you were already working on the performance, and this was kind of a last minute where Rona was like, frantically photographing as we were about to be thrown out of the building going, we need to get these because they'll end up in it. So, yeah. Yeah. There's lots of yeah, small pieces like that. Um, I think that's the end of my questions for you. Thank you very much Tessa and Rona for today and for everything else over the last probably coming up to nearly three years when we first started to have these conversations but also the generative and generous way that you've worked with me through the pandemic with this and responding to kind of small ways that we could operate and work within this museum. So I'm incredibly grateful that we now have the publication, but also two films um, that are shown today. I'm grateful obviously to Nicola L and Nicholas Fell for their work that we have in the collection. And I mentioned earlier the funding that was able to make this possible. So from both Glasgow City Heritage Trust and Art Fund. That's enabled us to work in the in-between spaces as our programme has had to be extended, reimagined and redone um, through the last two or three years. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode of the Glasgow Museum's podcast. If you've enjoyed and want to hear more, you can find more episodes available on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts and on SoundCloud too. Just look out for Glasgow Museums. Until next time, thanks for listening.